You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University, and I'm your host this week. With me this week is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, sir? I'm good, David. How are you? Ah, pretty decent. I've got about eh, three cups of coffee in my right now and feeling pretty kicky. I have, I have two diet sodas sitting on my desk in front of me, so... If you, hear me, if you hear me drinking, that's what I'm drinking nice. this episode. Also with <laughs> us is uh, the laughing voice of Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at uh, Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, sir? I am doing pretty well. I'm uh, teaching a relatively less insane overload this semester, so uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm actually uh, enjoying my job this year. Last year... I was enjoying every class that I was teaching, but I should have been teaching them over uh, four semesters instead of two. Mm. Tell our listeners how many uh, uh, how many classes you're teaching. Uh, this semester, I think I'm down to five. So uh, that is the sane version of the schedule. <laughs> yeah. Listeners, I'm teaching three. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, last semester I was up to seven discrete preps each semester. That is, I mean... I don't know if our non-academic listeners understand how absurd that is. Like, at most <laughs> yeah. schools, three is considered an overload. Not, I mean, not most small Christian colleges, but, like, at state mm-hmm. schools, I think they usually teach one or two classes a semester. Yeah, grad yeah. classes, so they're not as much prep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and these, I mean, and again, it was just that, you know, bad luck on my part, but, I mean, no two of my classes were sections of the same course. Oof. So I was prepping seven lessons you know, three times a week. Our high school yeah. teachers are all laughing at us, I know. Oh, I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got five classes this semester. Um, I'm doing a one-course overload, but I only have three preps. So, you mm-hmm. know, it, it really makes an enormous difference. I'm the director of the honors program now, and uh, they offered me more money, and I said... I would rather have a course release, so now I only teach three classes this semester. <laughs> I held out for the course release. Not That's excellent. Way better than the money, i got to say. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, I'm basically an administrator. I can't imagine doing that and teaching four classes. They gave you time. Yeah, That's well, one. yeah. You can't buy it, right? No. So, actually, I don't have classes on Tuesday and Thursday anymore. Man. Yeah. Dang. So, I just sit around, you know? Watch soap operas. <laughs> well, I mean, until the first round of papers come in, right? Well, as we all know, professors only work 15 hours a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nine for me. Well, um, we're going to give you something to do at least for the, the next hour or so, uh, slothful Michael. Um, I, prefer, I but, prefer Acadia. Acadia? <laughs> Excellent. Um, we uh, do we have any housekeeping to do before we get going? 
Um, I'm just going to put in a pitch for a podcast that I discovered recently. Actually, they discovered me recently. Uh, mm. Crackers and Grape Juice is a podcast by some uh, former Methodist seminarians and their friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a fun little show. I mean, they're still definitely getting their sea legs. I mean, uh, you know, they, they comment all the time that they're still learning how to do this. But uh, they've had some good guests on there. And then here recently... Uh, they went slumming a little bit and invited me on the show. So, uh, <laughs> and and I actually listened to it. I never listened to my own uh, my own uh, recordings, but I just remembered the recording session as my talking too much. And I listened to it, and I do talk too much, but it wasn't as bad as I remember. <laughs> I want to know how come you're the one who always gets invited on other podcasts. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to guess that uh, you know, I, I I just sound like the hillbilly who talks about dante and you know that's a good shtick and people want to you know <laughs> plug that into their various podcast i think you must have the best radio voice mm. <laughs> you, the cool sounds of nathan gilmore <laughs> <laughs> well he, he is the forrest gump of the internet I mean, it's we, true we, we've talked and, about I, that. and david i actually used that phrase in that recording so i Excellent. Excellent. On the first episode of this podcast, I believe I referred to you as the Internet Monk, which is a reference that cannot possibly make sense to people anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. It has been a lot of years, hasn't it? Rest in peace, Michael Spencer. It's like moment of silence. Memory eternal. Yeah. Well, we've also got uh, sundry podcasts that have been popping out, and you know, I know this is this is a week late, so you know, all you guys a week back in the past. uh, City of Man has been putting out some some stuff. There's been some more profiles episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked with the Christian feminist about NT Wright, Nathan. I did. Uh, I, I was actually on two consecutive Christian feminist podcasts, which yeah, they're really wrote. hurting for uh, panelists right now. Well, I, I was going to say which really means I'm <laughs> Forrest Gump in it because I I keep showing up to ruin their Black Panther party. But uh, <laughs> now, now. <laughs> oh shoot but no i mean both of those recordings were a lot of fun actually i was on there with four different hosts from the christian feminist podcast uh all of whom ran circles around me it's it it was a lot of fun recording with them awesome in all seriousness i do think they're looking for new panelists so if any of our listeners especially any of our feminist listeners um are interested you should definitely especially i contact them i mean because uh i i I, th- I think they are looking for new panelists. You okay. know, I say I think. I know they are looking for new panelists. I'm married to, yeah, the, uh, I'm married to the boss. You're married to the one who's looking. <laughs> yeah, so that that's our appeal, listeners. Uh, don't make the Christian Feminist Podcast bring Nathan on again. <laughs> Excellent. They still don't ask me. <laughs> Well, we should get into into uh, today's topic, shall we? Indeed. Well, uh, this was a listener request. Uh, Jurassic Park is what we're going to be talking about today. The movie, um, though, we're going to tip the tip the hat to the novel as well, because you know, anytime you've got a movie based on a book, you got to you got to relate it to the source material, um, even if it's only you know in a kind of desultory way, like you know, Blade Runner. Um, so starting, starting with you, Nathan, and for this first question, we'll just kind of work around. Do you remember first seeing Jurassic Park and 
what kind of effect did it have on you? Oh, do I ever. Uh, this movie came out in the summer of 1993. Uh, I turned 16 in April of 1993, which meant this was the first movie that I drove my own car to go see. Uh, I had a part-time job, and uh, I've never been wealthier in my life than when I was a teenager with a part-time job, because I had money coming in, but no bills to pay. Uh, So I went and saw this movie in the theater probably three different times that summer. Um, Oh, I mean, from from the moment I saw it, I knew that that, that this was my movie. Uh, So, I mean, I, I was a Jurassic Park fan basically as soon as it hit theaters. Uh, here recently, uh, in a moment of poor judgment, and you know, to give another reason why, if uh, there ever is a Christian humanist parenting podcast, I shouldn't be the host. Uh, I probably let my kids <laughs> see this movie too early because I was uh, chasing them out of my bed because they were having dinosaur nightmares for a week after. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's got kids in it, though. Yeah, but almost <laughs> And they throw up, and they get electrocuted, and they yeah. are paralyzed by fear. So, um, you know, the like I said, I mean, this was uh, one of those movies that really sort of joined my pantheon of movies as soon as it was in theaters. Uh, Michael, I mean, you were probably like, you know, four years old when it came out. So, what I was, was your 11. experience with it? Yeah. <laughs> I do not remember when I first saw this movie, but I do have two incredibly 90s stories about it. So, um, I went to go see Super Mario Brothers. Do you remember Super Mario Brothers? <laughs> it was it, it, a legendarily terrible adaptation of the Nintendo game. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Well, was it the one with Captain Lou Albano? No, that's the television set show. The oh, Super okay, Mario okay, Brothers okay. Super show. This, this featured Bob Hoskins as Mario and John Leguizamo oh. as Luigi. Wow. So think about that for a second. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, I went to see that, and the film caught on fire and melted. It's the only time I've ever seen that. It probably doesn't happen anymore because they use digital projection. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in the old days, they would actually show a physical film strip and it caught on fire and melted right as the movie started. So I remember this because the movie theater manager offered to let us see Jurassic Park. And I had told my father several weeks before that, that I, or it was probably a while before that, that anything Spielberg did was okay with me because he produced uh, Back to the Future, which uh, <laughs> I, I think I have made clear my feelings about that movie. But I was too afraid to see Jurassic Park because a couple weeks before that, I had seen the last 15 minutes of Poltergeist, while I was waiting for Captain Planet to come on uh, TBS Superstation. <laughs> so, like this I said, is, is, super 90s. The most 90s story ever. <laughs> I told you. Except this the next wonderful. one. So that, that, was my, um, that was my first encounter with Jurassic Park. I didn't go see it. Um, but I also remember my Uncle Wayne showing off his laser disc surround sound by showing, <laughs> by showing the scene with the Tyrannosaur footsteps. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, super 90s. I uh, I actually encountered that movie. I read the book, I think, before I saw the movie, and I definitely knew the Weird Al Yankovic song before either one of them. <laughs> so, uh, David, does your uh, story involve Mooresville, Indiana's movie theater or Laserdiscs? <laughs> um, let's see. The first time I saw Jurassic Park, it was on VHS. Uh, I did not see it in the theater. Uh, I was 15 when I came out. Um, but, uh, 
at that particular stage in my life, um, going to movies was just not something that we did very much of at all. Um, and Jurassic Park would not have been, you know, uh, I think my mom would have been like, you know, there are probably words in there that you don't need to know. Um, there actually isn't out, that much swearing in that movie. There's, I mean, there's some. There's, there's not, there's not. But, you know, the way I was raised, if I'd seen it when I was 15, the thing I would have come out of the theater wa- with would have been That's all of the moments. All, yeah, all of the <laughs> moments. Yeah, all the moments where they said words that my mom would not want me to say. That that would be like the thing that stuck out to me. Anyways, no. Um, but so it was it was actually a few years later before I saw the film. I saw it on VHS. Um, I think I might have even been in college at that point. And, but, but, you know, it's, it's, it's like the story I told about back to the future. Um, I didn't see back to the future when I was a kid, but I was in this culture that, that back to the future happened to anyway, same thing with Jurassic park. Um, I would, I would watch the commercials on TV or, you know, hear other people talking about it and, it was this amazing thing that I just hadn't gotten a chance to see yet. And the, the, the main thing to me is I, I really wanted to see the dinosaurs. I really, really, really wanted to see it. Sure. But two, just the glimpses that I'd seen in commercials and trailers and whatever, um, had blown my mind so much in terms of what the possibilities of film now were. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it wasn't just like, wow, those are dinosaurs. It was also, wow, those are dinosaurs. And now we can do anything. <laughs> I, I have to say, though, we're mispronouncing the word. My understanding is it's pronounced dinosaur. Oh, dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> Dino DNA. <laughs> yeah, Katie and I watched it uh, again a couple nights ago and... um she was physically assaulting me because I just would not stop doing the Mr. DNA voice. I have to say that movie, <laughs> it is amazing how much it holds up. Mm-hmm. Cause I, we watched it again. I mean, I watched it this week too, but we watched it again a couple years ago and I was expecting to think it was kind of a period piece and it is in some ways, but, um, man, it, it's, uh, it's still scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the, the biggest thing is, uh, you know, hacking, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the 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 phone systems needing to you know going online and all, offline and online and all the rest of it and you're like phones how quaint, <laughs> um, but yeah no it's it, it holds up super well. Uh, on the other hand, um, as as you as you said uh, long ago of Back to the Future, Michael, um, it's hard for me to have critical distance from Jurassic Park. Um, because uh, from the very first time I saw that movie, I was just completely immersed, completely into it. Um, so, yeah. But in the pre-show conversation, Michael, you said that um, uh, you'd read um, lots of Michael Crichton. You you identified as a Michael Crichton fan. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I, uh, I consider him a uh, first-rate, second-rate author. Okay. <laughs> I read, I think, most of his novels through high school. I don't remember hardly any of them because I'm not mm. sure they're incredibly memorable. Mm. Mm-hmm. But uh, did, I sure enjoyed them when I read them. 
Did you watch Jurassic Park after you'd read the novel? That is my memory. I read the novel okay. in seventh grade. I think okay. I saw Jurassic Park after that, although I can't be sure. Okay. See, I never read the novel, so how different is it from the movie? As I said, I haven't read it since seventh grade, and I don't remember that much about any of the great <laughs> okay. novels. But I, I looked some stuff up, and I do remember one thing. The one thing I do remember, Nedry's death in the novel is incredibly graphic. In fact, that's why I read the book to begin with. My friend had read it, and he said, you've got to read this thing about, uh, about this guy dying. I mean, it involves him um, feeling something in his hands and then realizing it's his own intestines. Excellent. So they don't do that so much in the movie for some reason. <laughs> um, so some other differences that I I found. I mean, I like I said, I don't remember this, so I'm building on other people's research, so to speak. Grant is not a child hater in the novel. He actually likes mm-hmm. children quite a bit, even at the beginning of the novel. So that that's something mm-hmm. they changed for reasons I'm sure we'll get into. Um, there are gender differences. There are not really strong female characters in the mm-hmm. novel. Um, Ellie Sattler has a has a relatively minor role, and and Tim is the computer whiz rather than Lex being the computer whiz. Okay. Many other things go wrong in the novel. Um, the the movie kind of makes it sound like the park would have been basically okay if Nedry hadn't turned everything off. In the novel, by the time the novel has started, dinosaurs have already escaped and made it to the mainland. And my memory is that the novel opens with a baby being eaten by a little dinosaur. So that's, uh, a, that's a little different. <laughs> yeah. That is not a Spielberg film. <laughs> Gennaro, Gennaro, the, the lawyer, isn't the loathsome coward that he is in the movie. And, and the reason for that is that there's another character, a, um, I think he's like a press agent, who has been combined with the character Gennaro into the one character in the, in the okay. movie. Um, it's the other guy who gets eaten off the toilet, I believe. Mm-hmm. Hammond in the novel is much less likable. He's not played by Richard Attenborough, for example. Uh-huh. Um, and, and he and Malcolm both die in the novel. And actually, it's funny, because Spielberg, Spielberg, Crichton wrote a sequel to the novel called The Lost World, but he follows the continuity of the movie. So Malcolm gets brought back for the second novel because he survives in the movie. Mm. Muldo- oh, that's fascinating. I never knew that. Muldoon in the in the novel is like a professional level alcoholic and he survives. And <laughs> and in a memorable scene, he shoots a rocket a tranquilizer through a rocket launcher at a at the T Rex. Huh. So he's that's, he's that's pretty, pretty cool in the in the novel. And I, 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 basically, I, I vaguely remember that. But I'm telling you, the two things that stuck out for me about the novel is Nedry's death and that baby getting eaten by the but a little I think it's a comp- compasaur. So, neither one of you read the novel? You know, no, my dad. My dad recommended it to me several times, but I've I've just never gotten around to it. So, it's, sorry, it's dad. Pulp, it's pulp fiction. I mean, your life is not worse for not reading it. <laughs> but uh, if you if you see it somewhere, it's worth a read, and you can read it pretty quickly. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's there's a lot of Crichton science babble. Yeah, I I, I read Congo. I read Sphere. And I read Eaters of the Dead. I, I was going to ask you if you'd read Eaters of the Dead. That's a, that's a reworking of Beowulf. Yeah, I actually like re- Eaters of the Dead a lot. It's it's, it's much it's, better uh, than the movie. They, they made that into a terrible Antonio Banderas movie called... Um, 13th Warrior. The 13th Warrior. What a piece of garbage. Well, it's still <laughs> the best Beowulf movie in existence. 
<laughs> which says something. But the novel's the novel's pretty good. Yeah, the novel's pretty good. I, the reason why I say Thirteenth uh, Warrior is the best Beowulf mil- movie that I know of is that it, it's it's the only one I know of in which Beowulf, the hero, is still uncomplicatedly heroic. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Um, um, all the rest of them compromise the heroism of Beowulf in a particularly modern way that I find loathsome. But yeah, we're not talking about Beowulf. We're talking about Jurassic Park. <laughs> okay, so so novel really quite different. So so Crichton's vision of this story very very different from Spielberg's. Is that? Is that that's what I'm getting here? I would not say super different, but mm. Spielberg changes some things, and this will lead into the next question, to make mm. things more Spielbergy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so Nathan, this mm-hmm. is a Spielberg film. In what ways is it Spielbergy? <laughs> uh, well, well, first of all, I'm, I'm terrible about situating particular films in a director's or a producer's corpus, so I'm going to hit a couple high points. And then I'll probably pass it over to Michael. He's much better at this. Um, one thing that immediately occurs to me, of course, is that you know this is not the first novel that Steven Spielberg, you know, adapted for film and you know took out some of the uh, super violence and the crazy cussing so that it would be you know available to a broader audience. Uh, Jaws, of course, is you know the story of a you know primordial force of nature it doesn't have ill will towards the protagonist so much as it is simply a predator uh so i mean there's there's definitely some connections there i mean uh you see it in the you know the dinosaurs which you know at this point i mean you've actually got the tech to do some full body shots of the dinosaurs and certainly you get some of that but you still get that jaws feel of you know in a very straightforward sense the jaws of the t-rex coming down at you, but you also get a lot of, you know, sort of monstrous shots of proportion, right? The human body next to massive appendages and tails and heads of dinosaurs uh, that really kind of give it that same feeling of, you know, the human beings in the movie, uh, you know, having their wits to protect them to be sure, but they better be on their game because these animals, these predators and honestly, even some of the herbivores, I mean, stand dangers to them that they simply aren't going to be able to escape once they get a hold of them. Uh, you know, the, the other series uh, from Spielberg that, you know, immediately came to mind uh, just because of the... Well, I mean, really, I mean, there are movies that I like to think about, and then there are movies that I want to watch again. One of the reasons that Steven Spielberg action movies are movies that I want to watch again uh, even when I, you know, don't necessarily have a whole lot of thoughts about him, like the Indiana Jones series, uh, is because he is a master of the big crash and the narrow escape. Uh, these are just fun movies to watch. You get a lot of that in Jurassic Park, you know, uh, lots of heights, lots of near misses, uh, lots of high-speed chases. Uh, you know, this is, you know, another one of those great Spielberg action films like Jaws, like the Indiana Jones movies. And then, you know, moving forward a little bit, uh, you know, about a decade after uh, Jurassic Park, you get another movie where, you know, you get sort of the same, 
philosophical feel of the movie. And of course, we're going to be digging into the philosophical questions all throughout this episode. But uh, I think of a movie like Minority Report, Mm -hmm. uh, where once again, the story that Spielberg tells is people who have very good intentions and very high ideals for a new technological innovation uh, that goes terribly wrong and ends up backfiring and not in as literal a sense, but uh, still in some sense devouring the people who had the highest hopes for it. So, Michael, I mean, those are kind of three sort of Spielberg high points that jump out at me. I mean, what else Spielberg-y do you see going on here? Um, Another thing about Jaws is this movie opens kind of the way Jaws does with a hidden monster destroying somebody. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is is just the arc he changes with uh, Alan Grant seems to me a distinctively Spielberg touch. This notion that this person who is grumpy and unpleasant toward children is eventually going to learn to love children. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that sort of yeah. like childhood warmth is very, very Spielberg. And, and you know, if you want to be biographical, people say it's because his parents divorced when he was a kid. I don't know. Um, but certainly that is something that is something you see frequently in his work and especially his post close encounters work. Mm hmm. So, I mean, the big difference, I guess, is he makes this warmer than Crichton does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think he's also playing up the awe. Um, I, I think there's some, you know, some ET moments going on, like with the, with the birth of the little dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it felt a little ET to me. Um, just the way that he wants you, especially for a moment, to just absolutely fall in love with Hammond's vision of what Jurassic Park could be, mm-hmm. in a way that, based on what you were your description of the novel, I, I don't know that Crichton necessarily wants you to fall in love with as much with that with that vision, um, but certain certainly Spielberg wants you to feel how wonderful Jurassic Park might be. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, also, I can't, you know, I, I can't separate Alan Grant from Indiana Jones in my head. <laughs> um, but to me, they, they, they feel like very, very similar characters um, in, in, in certain kinds of ways that the kind of um, adventuring scientist scholar who's still interested in his funding. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, do we want to say anything about the role of John Williams in all of this? Well, sure. One, one thing that you have to say about John Williams is he can make even the Star Wars prequels feel important while you're watching them. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, he's obviously a wizard with the sort of neo-romantic uh, orchestral soundtrack. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to think about this movie uh, without, you know, the famous fanfare that lights up when you know uh grant and malcolm and the others first see live dinosaurs in the park um yeah i mean you know the i I don't know what really else there is to say about it other than i mean the spielberg near miss combined with the john williams symphony uh i mean has made me watch this movie at least 20 times who is yeah. uh, Williams ripping off this time? Every time we talk about John Williams, we talk about what a plagiarist he is. He is at that. Um, hmm. Trying to think here. 
I hmm. mean, there's definitely some echoes of Holston here, which of course, you know, is yeah. the Star Wars soundtrack. Um, there's a lot of Wagner in, in Star Wars too, but not as much yeah. here. And I mean, I I I can't think of any big Stravinsky ripoffs like in Jaws. Yeah. So, Michael, you stumped us on this one. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I didn't have one in mind. You're you're the one who normally points that out when we talk about. <laughs> There's a kind of romantic sweetness to kind of the main theme. That's. Uh-huh. That that says this is not a movie about dinosaurs eating people alive. Right, right. right. Which, which, anyway, I, I, I think that's one of the most interesting things about it is, you know, when you return to the main theme of Star Wars, the main theme of Star Wars, that's what the story's about. Mm-hmm. Right? When you return to the main theme of Jaws, that's what the story's about. When you turn to the main theme of Indiana Jones, bum, 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 that's what the story's about. When oh, you yeah. turn to the main theme of Jurassic Park. It's what they it's wanted not... the story to be about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, 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 that tension there, I think, is interesting to me. Well, and like David said, I mean, that's something that I don't hear in, in Michael, what you said about the novel is, in this movie, it sets you up to lament for what Jurassic Park could have been. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Because of the change in Hammond's character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we talk about the dinosaurs, which I think, you know, is lodged in everyone's memory, um, I think we should say something about the human performances. And we've already kind of been edging in that direction. Um, so I'll pitch this at you, Michael. What what about the human performances in Jurassic Park? Uh, do we have who's strong, who's memorable in this film? Um, how are they complementing what what could have really just been an effects spectacle in the hands of a different director? Right. I mean, the 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 performances are better than they have any right to be. I would say, mm-hmm. um, and maybe we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's some really good actors here. Uh, Richard Attenborough yes. is famous, famously good. Laura Dern must be one of the best actresses of her generation. Um, Jeff Goldblum, maybe, depending on how you feel about Jeff Goldblum. Um, I mean, I he, love, definitely, he definitely has all the good one-liners. I love Jeff Goldblum. This I have no is, critical distance from Jeff this, Goldblum. This is part of that <laughs> weird period in the 90s when Goldblum was a major star and a sex symbol. Uh, yeah, he, he spends a lounging good ch- around with his shirt open yeah. and all of that. <laughs> like, like, what a oh, weird, what a so weird funny. time. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not sure he's so much acting as just doing the Jeff Goldblum thing. I, I remember reading years ago in in like Roger Ebert's movie Answer Man column, somebody wrote in and said that Jeff Goldblum is always eating. Like, there's a scene in every one of his movies where he's talking and eating at the same time. And he does that. It's one of it's his very first scene. He's eating on the uh, helicopter, for yeah. some reason. <laughs> like, what's he eating? I don't know, but that's what he does. He does that. You know, da, 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 da. I, I can't. I don't do impressions. One of you do a uh, Jeff Goldblum impression. The stuttering. I'll go okay. ahead, David. I, so, sorry, I have it. I have it in my head, but I can't do it. Well, everybody knows what <laughs> we're talking it. about. Uh, the, he, he's doing the Jeff Goldblum thing throughout. Uh, mm-hmm. Same the, thing with the, Wayne the, Knight. The, the, the droppings? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> same, same thing with Wayne Knight. Uh, Wayne Knight is basically playing Newman 
from Seinfeld. It's the only Mm -hmm. thing I've ever seen Wayne Knight do. But they're doing it well. It's it's written for them to do it, and they do a good job with it. Attenborough is essential in making John Hammond not a monster. You've got to feel for him to get the... um, to yes. get the mood of this movie right. He is grandfatherly. Mm-hmm. He's a fundamentally decent person. It's just that he's overly optimistic. Yeah. Um, which, you know, for Spielberg is probably a virtue more than it's a vice. The quiet scene between him and Dern when they're eating ice cream, I think is a really wonderful scene. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not going to win anybody. It didn't win anybody any Oscars, but it, it was better acting than a creature feature would seem to demand, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob, at the end of that scene when he says we spared no expense at yeah, the end of that scene he's so sad I, cl- I cried I just straight up cried last time I saw it I'd be like oh John Hammond come here buddy but he didn't he believe that <laughs> of course they spared expense they hired yeah. they hired Nedry as the cheapest bidder <laughs> the lowest bidder I mean they, they mm-hmm. spared expenses left and right I know I know it's kind of a great <laughs> no, tragedy no. Yeah. Um, Bob Peck, who plays Muldoon, and Samuel L. Jackson chew the scenery to great effect uh, and, and yes. are responsible They're for wonderful. two of the, the great lines for the movie. Hold on to your butts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of, of course, clever girl. Yes. Muldoon's final words. But, I mean, those are those are not small performances. Yes. No. I... I love the Muld- I love the Muldoon character. Oh, I you? love that mm-hmm. guy. You should read the book. Want- he has a much bigger role. I wanted him to live so much because he. he I, I would watch a prequel about him. Well, he, he is the only person who works at Jurassic Park who is sane and has some idea of what they're doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. Which is why he must die, right? Because he's he's the Cassandra. He's he's you know he can't possibly yeah. succeed. <laughs> Although, to be fair, if he knows that much about raptors, how come base, their basic hunting technique tricks him? Mm. Ah, because he's only ever seen them in captivity. Yeah, that's true. Fair enough. He's never seen them hunt. Well, the other thing is... Oh, yeah, so I mean, that, that, that's that's yeah. one of those tragic irony moments, right? Because, I mean, everyone in the audience remembers Grant's narrative about how they hunt. Yes. saying, look behind you, look behind you! <laughs> They're going to come from the side, from the side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clever yeah. girl. Uh, uh, the the weak link is the kids. I think both the kids are incredibly annoying, especially Tim. Oh, oh. <laughs> I've never wanted a kid to get eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> now, I like, the, I like that kid at the beginning. It looked like a big turkey. Have you heard the theory? That so that, funny to have, me. Have you heard the, the theory that that kid grows up to be uh, Chris Pratt in Jurassic World? <laughs> <laughs> Which I have not seen. I, I've not seen it either. I actually got it on DVD for Christmas and haven't gotten around to watching it yet. That's a that's a theory online. Delightful if true. <laughs> that is pretty fun. About the right age. I mm. love Sam Neill's eyes. Sam Neill's eyes have to me as much to do with how I feel at any given moment as the soundtrack. Cause mm-hmm. he has got these just amazing freaked out eyes. What about his uh, <laughs> slipping American accent? There's a couple That's points what... in the movie where you can definitely tell he's Australian. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 I love, I love, I love Sam Neill. I think he does a great job. Yeah. 
Um, Did you, either of you ever see the sequels two and three? I saw two, but I only saw it once, and I don't remember a thing about it. I didn't see any of them, so I don't know. And I, I never did see number three, and I, I'd, I'd like to see Jurassic World. Like I said, I've got it at home. I just haven't yet. Yeah. What's the one with the guy from Dodgeball? The guy from Dodgeball. Vince Vaughn. I can't remember his name. Vince Vaughn is in a Jurassic Park movie? Yeah. Vince <laughs> Vaughn's in, he's in, he's in, he's in two or three, and I can't remember which. Obviously, we've not seen these. <laughs> He's in the Lost World. He plays Nick okay. Van Owen, a well-traveled and experienced. And then I have to click on the link to see the rest of it. Is, oh, that, okay. the, is that the second one? A well, uh, yeah, it is a well-traveled and experienced documentarian and environmentalist. I yeah, love that right. Vince Vaughn is the guy from Dodgeball to you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's the one with Peter Postlethwaite in it, who's basically trying to be. You know, uh, trying basically trying to be Muldoon, but but with more nose. That's Kobayashi from Usual Suspects, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The guy with the inexplicable Japanese name. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Maybe we should see the second one. I read the book years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's got Julianne Moore in it as the character that I want to die. Um, <laughs> because this whole time she's like the dinosaurs and their ecosystem and we shouldn't disturb them. And I'm like, they're eating people, lady. They're just eating people. <laughs> they don't belong here. You know, their ecosystem. Uh, what a weird, it, what a weird argument to make. Yeah. 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 yeah she, 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 she's like, she's taking this kind of like, you know, don't hunt the pandas attitude about T-Rexes. And I'm like, right. Now, isn't, now, she, isn't she Ian Malcolm's no, no. girlfriend? How come he's not giving her that speech about, uh, they had their chance. Natural selection. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he does. He's in the movie. I, I, I. Funny thing is that I remember the guy from Dodgeball and Julianne Moore and Peter Postlethwaite more in that movie than I do Jeff Goldblum. Mm-hmm. And all I remember about that movie is the uh, the blatant ripoff of King Kong, where the T Rex escapes and then roars in the streets of New York City. San Diego. I'm looking at the picture right now. Oh, is it San Diego? Okay, I, I, well, that's how well I remember the movie. Well, I gotta <laughs> see this movie. You really want it to be New York City, though, right? That's that's. Well, the, I mean, that's, that's what the shot is. That's what the shot is. <laughs> Excellent. King Kong well, has just escaped his bonds. Well, let's talk about the dinosaurs, because I think we've kind of edged over in there. Um, <laughs> so, anybody can go watch the behind-the-scenes features for Jurassic Park, right? You know, you can you can go watch that stuff. So we don't need to dwell on the technical details. Though I will mention um I'd forgotten this just how close we got to a Jurassic Park with stop motion animation. Huh. Um we're gonna have what's his name? Harry Harkhausen come do it or uh no I don't I don't think it was Harry Housen. Uh I think it was another guy but who was also really really famous for being able to to do excellent stop motion. What's but, the guy who did the claymation Christmas? Will oh, I uh, think it was Will Shorts. I don't I don't know. I think it might <laughs> have been the same Will guy. Shorts. I think it might have been the same guy who did the stop motion in Jar- John Carpenter's movie The Thing. He he had kind of a kind of a rep for doing stop motion in serious scary movies. Mm-hmm. Um but the the guys who were doing 
who 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 were kind of on the edge of of computer animation really had to make make the pitch to Spielberg that they would be able to pull it off because um, they were it was it was almost stop motion. Anyway, so how effective is Jurassic Park in its presentation of these dinosaurs in making them successful in something as something more than just oh look at that it's a spectacle like how is this mm-hmm. not just Michael Bay's Jurassic Park? what i really remember about jurassic park uh whenever i think about it is just the range of shots uh so i mean you do have i mean that wonderful panorama while the john williams theme plays of you know all of the herbivores you know roaming the island and you know drinking from the lake and you know that's one kind of shot in jurassic park then you also have the you know the dark comedy of, you know, objects in the mirror may be closer than they appear as the T-Rex is closing in. Um, and then you have, I mean, the shots that are so super close up that they're reminiscent of Jaws. You know, the mm. T-Rex, you know, giving my kids nightmares coming through the roof of the SUV. Um, you know, what really stands out about this is you have all of those for the giant dinosaurs, but then you have the dinosaur that's actually smaller than Nedry terrorizing him. And I mean, having like this weird uh, back to the future backseat of the car scene with him. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that's what it reminds me of. <laughs> and then you have, you know, the Velociraptors. The, the rock and don't come knocking. Exactly. You know, but, but Marty McFly ain't going to save him. Um, not Marty McFly. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Okay, anyway, carrying on. Uh, But then, I mean, in addition to all those shots, you also have the velociraptors, which are bigger than human beings, but small enough that they come across as adversaries. So, really, I mean, part of the virtuosity of this movie is that it uses the range of sizes of, you know, the fossils that we're aware of from the Jurassic era and Cretaceous and so on and so forth uh, to create this, I mean, wonderful variety of dinosaur scenes. Uh, you know, they work as chase scene antagonists. They also work as behold the grandeur of this creation moment. And as David mentioned earlier, you even have the little dinosaur pups that everyone wants to take home. Uh, so, I mean, it really does just kind of run this wonderful range of kinds of shots. Uh, you know, my if I had to, you know, kind of pick a favorite one, uh, honestly, it would be that very first scene that we talked about earlier where you don't even see anything but the Velociraptor's eye mm-hmm. and you get that, you know, uh, that harrowing John Williams, something bad is happening and nothing can do anything about it music. Uh, and you know, the guy's getting pulled into the locker and you know, all of these things. Uh, and like I said, I mean, you know, just that brief shot of that eye and the pupil contracting as the light shines on it it might be, I think, more terrifying than the giant T-Rex chasing the Jeep. Hmm. The Velociraptors are terrifying. They yeah. are. They do a really good job making them look intelligent. Mm-hmm. Like, you can you, you can almost see them thinking. Clever girl. <laughs> well, the, the, way they, the way they kind of tip their head. Like a dog. And you're like, yeah, and you're like, eh? yeah. <laughs> the, way they, the way they click their little toenail. Those Uh-oh. evil faces. It's, it's so mm-hmm. bad. 
So awesome. Real Velociraptors turned out to be like chicken sized, I think. That would have made for a very different movie. Yeah. <laughs> what they're what they're calling Velociraptors, I can't remember I can't remember all the details. I think what they're, they're called calling Utah Veloc- Raptors now. Yeah, it's 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 actually like a completely different dinosaur that they're calling Velociraptors, but they're calling them Velociraptors because that sounded cooler than the other name. Well, I mm-hmm. think I think the science was relatively up to date when the movie came out, and it's just we know much more about dinosaurs now. Oh, okay. I don't. You know, the last time I thought seriously about dinosaurs, I was eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, that's a that's a phase a lot of boys go through, and girls too. My wife was super into dinosaurs when she was a kid. Mm-hmm. Nice, but I I haven't. I, I'm afraid I haven't kept up on the science. I'm not saying, by the way, that people who are interested in dinosaurs are childish, or anything like that. Just want to make <laughs> that just, clear. It's nothing just wrong, there. There is a dinosaurs. phase, and there is a phase in many children's lives, and when in which they are incredibly invested in all things dinosaur, and some people get out of that phase, and some people never get. My favorite was the Pteranodon, which doesn't appear in in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I would say the puppets definitely hold up better than the CGI. So the scene when the Brontosaurus first appears, mm-hmm. I think, is super fake looking. But, like, the T-Rex is a puppet for the most part and terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's actually kind of an argument against well. using super up-to-date technology, if you think about it. I, I think the CG actually works pretty well. Um, better, I think, than some than some later CG that was done in uh, in films where that where the, where there's uh, much more um, uh, use of digital to to set the uh, to set the color. Mm. Um, that, the Balrog other... from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, uh, th- there's something about the fact that everything else in Jurassic Park is being captured in a camera on real physical film mm-hmm. that I think makes even the even the CG shots that are you know 20 plus years old um, still hold up pretty well because everything else in the film is 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 telling my eye in ways that I can't even consciously see. This is a this this is a film of things that are there that the camera can see. You're you're right that it looks really good for a CGI film from 1993. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the puppets. I mean, stunning I mean, for that. The, the I think I just think the puppets look way better. They do. I mean, when the, when you know uh, Grant just sort of sprawled across that triceratops listening to it breathe, kind of riding the ribs as they, you know, as the lungs inflate and deflate. Um, that's just awesome. That's so cool. I mean, it, it looks like it's like, Oh look, they found a triceratops and then they got it sick. That's so mean. Why would they do that? <laughs> you know, I, I had forgotten. They never tell you why the triceratops was sick. Yeah, it it it. Because my memory stopped. was she that she found something in the big pile of crap that she sticks her hand into. Except she doesn't. No, she doesn't. What a bummer! They just mm-hmm. never, they just never come back to it. Yep, and the numbers on Lost don't actually mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, this film presents itself as having something to say about science. Maybe several things to say, actually. So 
pitching this at you, Michael. What what is this film saying about science? Does it have anything useful to say? And is it the same kinds of things that Crichton wanted to say in the novel? Yes, I, I think they are. And, and in fact, it's the same sorts of things he wants to say okay. in nearly all of his science fiction novels. Because Michael Crichton, yeah. despite being a pop science writer, really distrusts science. <laughs> um, he has a very <laughs> famous lecture late in his life about how climate change is essentially a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus should be ignored. Um, Jurassic Park is a variation on the Frankenstein story, and in fact I, I taught this film in a class I taught on technology and art right next to Frankenstein because they, they work mm-hmm. so well together. Hammond is an overreacher. He wants to control mm-hmm. things that fundamentally can't be controlled. Ian Malcolm, in this sense, is, is Crichton's voice. Um, he constantly comments on the actions. He, uh, he criticizes Hammond's hubris, and that's actually even more true in the novel, um, that, that he, he is just telling you exactly what Michael Crichton thinks about everything. By the way, why, um, why would Hammond invite a chaos theoretician to view his dinosaur amusement park? Well, Is that ever explained? Doesn't at one point, um, I think they were in the helicopter, Hammond says... I invited the paleontologist and you invited the rock star, he says to the lawyer. So no. the lawyer who was invited, Ian Malcolm, probably because he looks he looks like he – the gist that I get is that he's supposed to be this kind of super famous publicly known scientist who's mm-hmm. kind of like a TED Talk guy before there are TED Talks. I think he's, so he's kind like, of a Richard Feynman type except he's a mathematician. Right. Mm-hmm. So. So he's this he's this kind of voice of science that the lawyer had heard of, essentially. Interesting. Anyway, it's a movie about having respect for nature, the, the famous line, life finds a way. Um, and and mm-hmm. in that sense, it may not be so much anti-science as it's anti a particular kind of science. Mm. Um, and, and I don't know, it seems like good advice to me. Uh, Malcolm has another famous line, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, that, I think, is something to keep in mind with all sorts of technological developments, not just cloning dinosaurs, but I think there's a lot of technology that we invent without really considering uh, considering the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. But what do you do with a multi-million dollar effects spectacle that takes a hard line against technology? I mean, how, how seriously can you take the anti-technology argument of this movie, given that I'm sure at the time this movie had more technological effects than any movie in history? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have an answer for that. I'm actually asking. That was not a hypothetical <laughs> question. Well, I mean, it, it's the, the, the film simultaneously invites you to have the vision of how amazing it would be if dinosaurs were resurrected and then kind of give you some reasons why it's kind of a good thing that this is still just an imaginary story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, it it, it gives with one hand and it, and it kind of takes away with apologies with the other hand. I mean, it's a little bit like Truffaut's law, right? Truffaut, um, he's a French director. He says, you can't make a movie, a, a really anti-war movie, because war looks good on the screen, I think. I don't know exactly how he phrased it. 
but mm-hmm. you can't make a multi-million dollar special effects spectacle that is a critique of technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the novel, in that sense, works better, you know, because it doesn't it doesn't require a whole lot of modern technology to print a novel, depending on what you mean by modern. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, but uh, they didn't have to actually clone dinosaurs to make the film, you know. So, you know, I. I, I... (laughs) Well, honestly, I think that might be, I mean, another Frankenstein tie-in, right? Because I mean, Mm -hmm. Frankenstein uh, doesn't use cutting-edge technology to animate the corpse. I mean, he goes back to medieval, you know. I, I can't remember if it's alchemical or some other kind of manual, and basically pulls out old forbidden stuff. Uh, that everyone else had dismissed as you know either passe or forbidden. He's so Faust. I mean, I, I think that I, what now? He's Faust, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, in that respect, I think that uh, technology is not a monolith in this film, just like uh, science is not a monolith in Mary Shelley. Because mm-hmm. you've got representatives of the sciences you know you've got your two you know you have your your paleontologist your paleobotanist right right your, but, but your rock star you go, mathematician before you go on both both yeah. of the paleontologists are luddites or it, it, it grant yeah. is especially a luddite yeah mm-hmm. yeah he touches machines and they die right so good good <laughs> science doesn't need technology good science is about going into the field and getting your hands dirty mm-hmm it's about understanding the nature that's there, not altering it to our whim. Right. So you're, you're right. Calling it anti-science is too easy. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not sure how much science is really done the way Grant and Sattler mm-hmm. do, do paleontology anymore. I think most science yeah. is probably done with amazing amounts of technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who's a biochemist at the University of Minnesota. And he can't even run the tests he needs to run at the University of Minnesota, which is, of course, a multi-million, maybe billion-dollar science place. <laughs> um, instead, he has to send it to Chicago. I mean, think about mm-hmm. think about how much technology is necessary for doing any science. I mean, this is this is part of Leotard's point in. Um, what is it? Is that answer to the question? What is postmodern? No, it's uh, the postmodern condition. Yeah, but because because there is no gentleman scientist anymore, there's no Alan Grant. Um, mm-hmm. It requires huge financial investments, and, and that means you're going to get guys like the John Hammond of the novel, rather than the mm-hmm. John Hammond of the movie, who get their hands into all science that's being done, which means none of it's pure anymore, and it's all going to end up being used for some sort of material profit, and that's the best case scenario. Because mm-hmm. uh, more likely it's going to be used for military applications. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, yeah, it, go ahead, David. Uh, I, you bring up gentleman scientists. Probably the closest person in here to to the kind of scientific dilettante. Uh, I mean, might even be Hammond. You know, or, the or man Tim. of independent means who's just curious. Yeah, mm-hmm. but. You, I, I find it difficult. I don't think he's just curious. At least he's not just curious because he's also making, you know, 
he wants to make millions of dollars on this. Now, one of the things the film does that's interesting is it makes Gennaro the voice of the of of capitalism because Gennaro yeah. wants mm-hmm. to charge ten thousand dollars, and Hammond says he wants everybody to be able to come. So maybe you're right. I mean, he does he does seem to have more altruistic motives than than yeah. he does in the novel. Certainly, I think that might be Spielberg softening his character too. It would be really hard to have Richard Attenborough play him and he him look like he does in the novel. Right. I mean, right. Richard Attenborough plays Santa Claus the next year for crying out loud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is something that's that's bothered me last few times I've watched this film. Maybe it's 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 like a book of nature question, but it's it's always been kind of weird to me when um, Malcolm and Grant both assign a kind of ethical force to the fact that dinosaurs went extinct because of some kind of, you know, natural evolutionary changes. Whatever it is, is right. The, yeah, yeah. The, the, the dinosaurs had their shot. We shouldn't bring them back. Like there's some kind of ethical force behind natural selection that, that, you know, life determined that things were going to be this way. Maybe not, maybe not ethical. you to question nature. Maybe not ethical, but maybe pragmatic. I mean, the fact that the dinosaurs went extinct is one reason that human beings were able to survive and evolve, you know? Mm -hmm. If the dinosaurs had still been around when humans were around, um, with all due respect to our young Earth creationist listeners, um, I'm not sure human beings would have lasted that long. (laughs) Well, maybe they were super clever. Well, and, and then you've got that little bit where the whole thing gets kind of tweaked in a feministy direction that then is abruptly abandoned with, you know... Uh, dinosaur with, uh, eat man, well, woman, inherit, woman inherits the world? Yes, dinosaur, dinosaur <laughs> eats man, woman inherits the earth. <laughs> which, which very much um, in that one little moment, it makes technology not like this humanity... Um, sort of forcing its will upon nature, the rape of nature. Oh, wait, you know what? The gendered, the gendered critique of, of, of technology actually starts with Malcolm with his, uh, with his technology. Rape rape. Of nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, of, of gendering it, it's not, it's not just the human that does this. It's the male that does this. Well, anyway, how many, how many women work for Jurassic park? Uh, I don't know. There's been a large scale evacuation. We don't see any anyway. Yeah. Women do like, not have yeah, the... women don't have the the essential roles. And even yeah. Sattler, who like I said, has more to do than she did in the book, doesn't have that much to do. Every time I watch the movie I think, man, I wish Laura Dern had twice as much. Mm. Yeah. I mean she turns the power on. That's it's true. I mean, that's cool. She has that awesome scene <laughs> where she uh where uh Samuel L. Jackson's arm falls on her. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I just keep wanting him to show up in the sequels with like one arm. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on to your butts. <laughs> <laughs> with your one arm. When he says that, I've always wondered this. Is he talking about your cigarette butts or like your buttocks? I think yes. I think it's your butt. <laughs> So he 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 spends that entire movie with a cigarette in his mouth. It's great. He does, like, really I don't know is. how he talks. 
yeah. when, and those loving close-up shots of him inhaling and that little flicker of light at, at the at the end of the at the end of the cigarette as he's like working on the computer and you can see that little ember go flare up anyway now i want a cigarette <laughs> thanks david Just, you're welcome <laughs> um so yeah, so dinosaur spectacles aside, this is still a Spielberg film, and we've already, we've kind of been talking about the humans again. Anyway, Spielberg always has things about to say about humanity. So Nathan, what what humanness shines through Jurassic Park? And there's all kinds of directions you could go with this. So have fun. certainly, certainly. I mean, you know, the dark side of humanity gets eaten. That's one important thing to note. Uh, you know what? You know whether we were talking about Nedry uh, or whether we're talking about Gennaro. I mean, uh, you know, both of them end up being food for carnivorous lizards, uh, and I, I don't think that that's uh, insignificant. You know, uh, the voice of acquisition, the uh, the voice of Pleonexia, uh, ends up on a toilet being eaten by a large dinosaur. <laughs> Um, but beyond that, one of the story arcs you guys have already mentioned is the fact that, uh, Grant over the course of the film and, you know, Michael already mentioned the, the differences when you read the novel is someone who has little time for children to be sure a little time for innovation, little time to listen to people who aren't already on his project. And over the course of it, you know, comes to be a father figure and a rescuer to the children, uh, comes to, you know, he still doesn't, you know, uh, like Jurassic Park at the end, obviously, uh, but he's gotten out of it with the help of other people. Uh, I, I think that he's the character, I mean, who undergoes the most obvious change over the course of the movie. Now, the the children, annoying though they are, I think represent something about humanity, namely that uh, even in the the context of of this grand terror, being chased by dinosaurs and falling out of trees and having automobiles fall out of trees on you and, you know, all of these sorts of things, uh, the kids really kind of show up as exemplars of courage in moments of great stress, they are able to do things under pressure that allow the adults in the film to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, that's another one of those places where, I mean, we know that, you know, Steven Spielberg uh, has a great joy when the smaller, weaker characters rescue the larger, stronger characters. That certainly, I mean, happens a number of times in this film. Uh, you know, the, Ah, the Hammond character. What to say about the Hammond character? This version of Hammond is someone who is certainly the grandfatherly figure. Uh, You know, he loves his family, and that's the first thing that he thinks about when, you know, the park goes down is rescuing his grandchildren. But he's also a person who has that grand overconfidence. And, you know, like Michael said, right after we find out that he sold the computer programming into the operation to the lowest bidder, uh, he still has that line that he spared no expense. So, you know, it, the, these are characters who lie to themselves, to be sure, but they're also characters who can emerge into 
Oh, I don't, I don't know. Want to know? I don't know if I want to call it greatness, uh, but they certainly emerge into moments where they help each other to make it through the movie. Uh, Michael, I mean, what else did would you point to in all of this? Malcolm makes this argument uh, in one of his monologues, and, and the argument is for the slow development of virtue. So here's what he says. I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're using here. It didn't require any discipline to attain it. You read what others had done and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourself, so you don't take any responsibility for it. And I heard that in the movie, and I was thinking, yeah, yeah, because he's using a lot of words I like, like uh, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> discipline and responsibility. Uh, but the more I think about it, the less that argument makes any sense at all. I, I'm not a scientist, so maybe we need the Book of Nature guys to help us here. But So right in, guys. Isn't what he's saying the way science works? Uh, Uh, yeah. (laughs) What would it mean for Hammond to earn the knowledge for himself? Like, is he supposed to go back over discoveries that have already been made and just do them again? Like, it's an incoherent argument. And mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I just I wondered if maybe you uh, you guys could shed any light on that. Oh, that that speech. I mean, yeah. I mean, is is the most incoherent speech in the movie. I th- I think that. And and Michael, I mean, is there a version of that in the novel? Do you uh, remember? You can be assured that I do not remember. Okay, all right, that's fine. Let, let's assume that there is. Um, I think that that's one of those moments where Michael Crichton or Steven Spielberg or the screenwriter whoever put that in there had this sense that, okay, this is a moment where we need some kind of philosophical sounding argument for why this is all wrong. And the speech that they put in Malcolm's mouth is, you know, like we just talked about basically a description of how science works rather than a discussion of its abuses. Uh, You know, this is one of those places where, you know, maybe some Mary Shelley, maybe some Ovid, would have been more uh, appropriate here, right? Because uh, Grant here is a Daedalus figure. You know, he is taking things that he can do. And, you know, uh, for all we know, I mean, I I won't even say for all we know. I mean, he is taking the steps that science takes, but he is moving it in directions that introduce so many variables to the system that, you know, he is putting himself at the mercy of fortuna in a way that a wiser person wouldn't which is the argument you would expect a chaos theoretician to make rather than this <laughs> rather than this weird thing about the discipline and attaining knowledge and and it's not that there's no mm-hmm. argument for scientific discipline it's just that the one he makes is nonsensical and right, he shouldn't right. be making it uh, grant should probably be making it and and if you think about what grant does Grant is out there in the field, like sweating over it. I'm not sure, as mm-hmm. I said before, I'm not sure if science really works that way anymore. But at mm-hmm. least, uh, at least it would make um, sense coming from Grant rather than from Malcolm. Mm-hmm. It might even make even more sense coming from Ellie, um, with her comments about what plants they grew uh, on the islands. Um, in in connection with with the dinosaurs, she seems much more aware of this idea of nature as, in terms of in terms of whole patterns and whole relations and whole ecosystems, which again is something that only the disciplined scientist can make. It's not just a question of can we 
can we get a viable dinosaur fetus by tinkering with these genes? It's having the discipline to learn and then imagine the whole world of the dinosaur. It reminds me of that stupid meme that gets passed around on Facebook sometimes. Science can tell you how to clone a Tyrannosaurus, but the humanities can tell you why that's a bad idea. You, mm-hmm. you shouldn't need the humanities to tell you why that's a bad <laughs> Like, if that's what we're here for, good lord, no wonder nobody thinks we have any value. That, that right. meme makes me I... so angry. <laughs> no humanities Just... majors in Jurassic Park. <laughs> Right, right. Though I don't know. I mean, what was Muldoon's major? I mean, I'm not sure Muldoon is the college type. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. (laughs) Well, as we round out our conversation, what else might a Christian humanist get out of Jurassic Park that we haven't already discussed? I think when a a Christian looks at this movie, first of all, one of the lessons I think it can teach us is just how many interesting conversations get short-circuited if we hear the word evolution and flee the scene. Uh, you know, this is one of those movies I think that's good for Christians who are not themselves, you know, young earth creationist types. But I think that at the very least, even someone who is that type would benefit from entering into this imaginative universe and seeing the sorts of ethical and human questions that arise when you're inside this universe. And I guess that would be sort of my plea for reading this, uh, you know, either as a pagan text, if you will, uh, or at the very least as an alien text for people who don't share these assumptions. Uh, This is a story that yields fruit even if you don't agree with the initial premises. Uh, so, I mean, I, you know, the, and I, I, I have no idea why I thought this direction when I saw your question, David, uh, mm-hmm. but it just kind of occurred to me that, you know, when I teach my students to read Athenian tragedies, uh, or, you know, Homeric epic, I am asking them to step imaginatively into a universe whose basic foundational structure they don't share. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that, I mean, even someone who uh, is a young Earth type could probably step into this movie and enjoy that kind of experience, even if, they, if, even if it ain't their world. And, I mean, even if you're mm-hmm. not a young Earth creationist type, I am not, uh, I tend not to believe that, you know, one could actually, you know, clone dinosaurs and get a 30-ton Tyrannosaurus as a result. Uh, mm-hmm. But again... If you grant that at the outset, it allows you to enter into this very complex narrative and really kind of enjoy some of these questions that we've been digging into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's 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 a it's a good venture into into a worldview that um, e- even a, even a Christian who who views um, the mechanisms of biological evolution as a means that the creator used to, you know, accomplish the creative act. Um, nonetheless, um, that's still not the universe of Jurassic Park, um, in which nature and chance and chaos and life in this kind of ambiguous, undefined way ends up being this kind of ultimate term. 
Um, but you still have all of these characters who want to make ethical moves mm-hmm. um, in relation to that, which is uh, which I, th- I, I think I think should be really interesting um, for for Christians watching that uh, watching that. It's like, to, what do they base those ethical moves on? Um, mm-hmm. We'll. What are we doing next week? Well, next week, uh, we're going to take a far more mundane subject matter on. Uh, there have been some interesting internet pieces here recently about the genre of the college lecture. Uh, and I thought it might be worthwhile talking about it since I have never, as far as I remember, taught a lecture course. I know Michael has, uh, it might make for some good conversation. Cool. Well, so uh, next week we'll be we'll be having a conversation about college lectures, a dialogue based podcast about lecture. <laughs> Excellent. Well, in the meanwhile, if you have any uh, comments to make about this episode, favorite bits of Jurassic Park that we left out, um, you know, corrections about you know things we've said about dinosaurs or paleontology <laughs> or michael Crichton or whatever else you can make those comments on the show notes to the uh on the blog when those post at christianhumanist.org you can also email them to us at the christian humanist at gmail.com or post them on our facebook wall um you can like us on facebook you can give us good ratings on itunes we love those we crave those um spread the love so that more people uh can find us Uh, In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs uh, on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Who is our intern right now? Amberly Copeland. Amberly Copeland, still there. All right, still there. Thank you, thank you, Amberly. Our 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 intern is Amberly Copeland. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And now I tell you good advice from Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger.